Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, on Friday the 13th, we look into one of the most successful horror movie franchises of the same name to find out why a dispute has delayed a new addition to the series for years. We speak to an entertainment lawyer who happens to have acted in Friday the 13th, Part 3. We look at how Russia's invasion of Ukraine caused Finland and Sweden to end decades of stated non-alignment and move quickly to join NATO and how it could be one of the biggest shifts in European security in decades, driven by popularity of the move in both countries. We find out why so many First Nations communities are being left behind as internet connectivity continues to get faster and faster in the rest of the country and the significant impact it's having. But first, infant formula shortages are a national crisis in the U.S. with the White House now involved in trying to make sure parents there can find what they need on store shelves. We find out why those same problems haven't been seen in Canada and what to expect in the future. But first up tonight, finding baby formula has become something of a nightmare for some parents in the U.S., many parents in the U.S. these days. A number of factors have led to nationwide shortages, empty shelves, um, lots of consternation. Even President Biden chimed in this week saying his administration is stepping up its response to the formula shortage that has forced frenzied parents into online groups to swap and sell to each other to keep their babies fed. Um, the White House says Biden spoke Thursday with executives from manufacturers about how they could increase production and how his administration could help. He also talked with leaders from Walmart and Target about how to restock shelves. I'm sure you've seen the stories. It's alarming stuff. We were wondering what was going on in this country. Also, what's behind that shortage in the U.S. and how might it impact us here, if, when? So joining me now is Michelle Pensabranco. She's the, uh, Branco rather, she's the co-founder of the nonprofit Safely Fed Canada. Michelle, thank you so much for your time on a Friday night. Thank you. Happy to be here. Uh, the images we're seeing, it's certainly a huge story in the United States right now. The White House is involved. What's led to this? It's uh, It seems like a perfect storm of, of factors that have caused these shortages. It very much has been. I think for those of us who work in this uh, field, it's not really a surprise that this is um, a product line or pro- these are product lines that are produced by a really small number of manufacturers and that, that the production and the manufacturing capacity is very concentrated in just a couple of factories in the U.S. Um, so when there is um, a major problem in one of those factories, it, it can create pretty significant downstream impacts to the whole market. Before that, we had um, existing challenges because many of the inputs that come uh, into the U.S. to produce infant formula are also um, facing some supply chain uh, hiccups along the way, partly just in general and partly exacerbated by the pandemic. So um, this is a particularly unusual confluence of events, uh, but it's not so unusual for us to have limited and and momentary um, shortages of specific products at any given time. I understand there's one factory in particular, an Abbott factory in Michigan, that is uh, both the source of concern and also may be closed for a while. Yeah, so the the factory that's uh, the Abbott factory in Michigan is particularly problematic because the closure has been quite quite long. Uh, the way that happened was that there was a, a number of illnesses were discovered in infants uh, receiving some of the Abbott uh, products, and uh, a number of those those babies have actually gotten so ill that they that they ultimately died. So it's a very it's a very serious concern, 
And uh, the factory has been closed down. And part of the reopening process is to do some pretty intensive investigations and, and um, inspections. And some of the problems that inspectors have, have uncovered are requiring a longer uh, lead time in order to, to rectify them before they can restart production. So because it takes such a long time to produce uh, a run a run of product and then get it out to stores these lengthy these lengthy closures are creating sort of a, a domino effect through the whole market and where does that leave parents i understand specifically parents with children who have allergies and so on who need special kinds of infant formula it's been particularly tough uh, but what are you hearing about what parents are going through in the u.s right now it has it has been tough uh, i think for all parents who are hearing about these stories because regardless of whether or not it directly affects them where they see it uh, immediately in their community, the concern about it and the anxiety around it is sufficient to cause some pretty cr- pretty big distress. Um, for parents who are using some specific products, particularly uh, babies who uh, have been diagnosed or suspect that they have a dairy allergy, there are a limited number of products available uh, for those babies uh, who can't be uh, breastfed directly, um, who who have to be on a formula, which is normally cow's milk based. So babies who are allergic to dairy can't take that, can't use the standard infant formulas. And, and uh, if they can't be breastfed, they, they then need to use these specialized formulas. And there are really only two brands available out there. And one of them was affected by the Abbott recall. So it's created quite a, quite a concern in that, for that particular group of parents. It's a small group of babies, but if it's your baby, it really doesn't matter that it's a small group of babies. Michelle, as you well know, if we're talking about this tonight, it's because so much of what happens in the U.S. tends to filter across the border to us. Uh, We haven't seen quite the same impact here yet, though, have we? Or will we? No, no. I think we've seen the the reports from both Canadian retailers and from colleagues across the country that uh, we've been keeping in touch with are that the standard infant formulas are really not in any sort of short supply. What The fluctuations that they're seeing are pretty typical and certainly not um, any more significant than they've seen throughout the whole pandemic. For parents who are particularly looking for the fully hydrolyzed formulas, they are having a hard time finding them in many communities. And um, what parents are uh, have been having some success with is contacting the manufacturer directly because they can often identify where the product can be found uh, within a reasonable distance to, the, to their home. I suppose one of the concerns here will be that you know, images of empty shelves in the U.S. will cause people to start to, to hoard, so to speak, or to buy up in Canada as well. Absolutely, yeah. One of the, the problems that we, we face is that the images are very emotive, regardless of whether or not they apply to your particular community. So regardless of whether or not parents, if they when they go to the grocery store, actually see empty shelves, if they see empty shelves on news and they see empty shelves on social media and they hear some of the really heart-wrenching stories that we're hearing out of the United States, that reflects in their own experience when really we, that's just not what we're seeing here. And there are reasons for that, partly because we use less infant formula on a per capita basis because we breastfeed more here. Um, and partly because of the way that uh, formula is distributed through the public health nutrition system in the, in the U S that it's not distributed here. Um, so that those, those can, those factors can really skew how the supply gets distributed and, and how people take it up at, at the retail level. Is there any anticipation that as this situation in the U.S. continues, it might come come across the border in some way, shape, or form? Well, you know, I think the Hard pandemic say, has right? taught us all mm. never to say never about anything. Right. Um, but at the moment, we really don't anticipate uh, a widespread 
uh, widespread shortages here um, at at any point, we are seeing that in the U.S., the manufacturers are ramping up their production. They're improving their distribution. And we expect that the Abbott plant that's been the source of so much consternation and so much concern um, should be up and running quite soon. And that supply should start to normalize again. Um, that being said, at an individual level, accessibility is going to vary. So um, someone may... may end up at their supermarket and find that they don't have the product that they need. What we really need to communicate to parents is that for the standard infant formulas, all these products are interchangeable. So even if the brand that you usually use isn't on the shelf, any brand that's uh, that's labeled as infant formula is, is nutritionally adequate and can be used for any child under the age of 12 months. I gather what's important here is just a transition process from one formula to the other if need be. Yeah, and there really isn't the the products are actually almost identical. Um, if you look at the the labels, there the the ingredient lists are very very minimally different. Um, there are lots of claims on those uh, labels, but the the claims themselves don't have any nutritional purpose. They're primarily for marketing purposes. I'm speaking with Michelle Pensabranco. She's the co-founder of the nonprofit Safely Fed Canada. We're talking about the uh, infant formula shortage in the U.S., something we haven't seen the real impact here uh, in Canada of yet, but but certainly the images from the U.S. are uh, emotive enough, as Michelle was mentioning, uh, that it's always good to make sure that Canadians are informed about what the situation is here. Uh, after this, I want to ask you a bit, Michelle, uh, after we take a quick break, just about the conversation that all this has prompted about formula, uh, because there's been a lot of misconceptions, there's been a lot of angry sort of tweets out there uh, towards people talking about this. It has kind of raised a conversation about formula versus breastfeeding. And I'll ask you about that when we get back. I'm speaking with Michelle Pensabranco. She's the co-founder of the nonprofit Safely Fled, Safely Fed Canada. We've been speaking about shortages of baby formula in the U.S. I, I imagine you may have seen the stories. It's uh, pretty shocking, uh, certainly concerning for parents. Uh, a lot of parents in the U.S. right now trying to find formula uh, with these shortages caused by a number of factors, including a uh, manufacturer who shut down a particular manufacturing plant, some supply chain issues as well. We don't expect it to come over across the border, uh, says Michelle. Never say never these days, but we haven't seen much of it yet. There may be some isolated incidents, but overall, not the same level of shortages that we're seeing in the U.S. Michelle, I was curious just to see some of the debate that this has sparked, um, specifically in the U.S., but I think everywhere, just about why some parents need to use infant formula and also just, um, you know, breastfeeding resources in general. How are we doing enough to encourage uh, moms to make sure that they don't need formula if need be, or if they have access to it or are understood if they do? Yeah, I think I think um, this is always what unfolds when we have any kind of conversation about infant feeding is that we try and make this into two camps, which is the breastfeeding people over here who are good people and they're doing the right thing and the formula feeding people who are the wrong, on the wrong side and they're doing the wrong thing. The reality is, is that those of us who work in this field know that the mothers who breastfeed and the mothers who formula feed are often the same mothers. Most Babies in Canada are breastfed, uh, at least initially. Um, the overwhelming majority, for example, of, of infants in uh, BC, 96, 97% of, of babies are breastfed in hospital. So we know that that's not really, it's not really an indiv- it's not really a group um, that's particularly significant or particularly large. Um, but the reality is that most of those people who start out breastfeeding in hospital also will use formula at some point. So the idea that there's like two camps sort of fighting it out mommy war style, um, I think suits some people's narrative, but it doesn't really reflect the reality of parenting in our modern world. 
And in our modern world, the reality is, is that we don't always do a great job of supporting parents to uh, breastfeed the, uh, for as long as they want to. The research consistently shows in Canada and in the U.S., and elsewhere, that parents stop breastfeeding well before they intended to for reasons that are largely not in their control. So for reasons of difficulty with support, difficulty with technique, uh, difficulty with managing their, their daily lives so that they can, they can fit in their parenting and, 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 and the time that they need to spend um, feeding their babies. So those are things really that I think those conversations always seem to unfold because I think it's a con- convenient way to set up two opposing camps. But the reality is, is that for parents, we know that we're, sh- we're sharing more experiences than, than we're having as, as different ones. So um, it's important, I think, to remember when we talk about breastfeeding parents versus formula feeding parents, that those are not really two distinct groups. It just depends what point in, in their parenting journey you happen to come upon them. Um, and, the, you know, the good news is, is we can we can improve and increase breastfeeding, even if it's even if it hasn't been going so well with good support. Um, one of the challenges we have right now is, is that many of the programs and many of the support uh, supports that are in place at the community level have not been happening because of uh, pandemic related changes, staffing difficulties and just plain funding. It wasn't going so well before the pandemic started either. It would seem like something that would be necessary to pick up again uh, and at least make sure that uh, that there are facilities available widely uh, that allow uh, allow moms and, and parents in general to make that choice. Absolutely. And most parents, when they have support and they have an, an environment that's enabling, have already shown us and told us that not only are they willing to do it, they're willing to really put in lots of effort because for a parent to get to the point where they're despite all of the lack of support where they are exclusively breastfeeding is quite a, it's quite a feat these days. Um, so I think parents have really shown us that they're they're This is something that's important to them and that they're willing to do, to do it. If we'll simply put in the supports that they need to make that happen. But more funding obviously needed to make sure that this is happening at the community level, that the support is there. Because as you mentioned, it is difficult. And the fact that so many choose to stop because they just can't uh, is something that we could, we could, easily, we could easily at least uh, lessen to some extent. Yeah, and parenting is tough, regardless of how you feed your baby. So when we talk about supports, we're talking about breastfeeding supports, but we're also talking about the supports of just transitioning to being a parent of a young child and being a family and managing all of those things. So again, creating too many lines and too many um, categorizations of, of who we're going to help and who we're not going to help is really, I think, not very helpful. We really need to look at that transition to parenthood as a time when we're going to wrap services around parents to help them set the, their family up for a healthy life. Well, hopefully if something, if something good happens from these shortages is that we're having this conversation again about, about how, how much more complex it can be than sometimes we see on social media. Michelle, uh, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Because it is Friday the 13th, but instead of talking about superstition or bad luck, at least not yet, we're going to look at the movie franchise that took its name from this very unlucky day and turned it into big box office success. The first Friday the 13th movie was released way back in 1980, but it launched that franchise, and you know what, there's been dozens of them, feels like it, that would include 12 films, to be exact, a television series, novels, comic books, video games, merchandise, everything. 
Legal issues, though, mean we haven't seen, and a feud, mean we haven't seen a newest installment uh, of that series in quite some time now. Of course, back then, critics hated them. Fans loved them. More than 40 years later, it is considered one of the most successful media franchises in the U.S. Jason's hockey mask has become one of the most recognizable images in horror and popular culture. He actually takes that mask from a character called Shelley Finkelstein in Friday the 13th Part 3, a role played by a young Larry Zerner. That movie all about a group of camp counselors who try to reopen a summer camp called Crystal Lake. Here is Shelley Finkelstein. I guess I fooled you, huh? Jerk! Chris, leave him alone. He doesn't know any better. It was a joke! It was just a joke! I didn't mean to. You never mean to. And Larry Zerner joins me now from LA. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Ben. <laughs> Is this always a day that that uh, that means something special to you, given your given your your involvement with the franchise? It is. It is. People always were wishing me, you know, happy Friday 13th on the Twitter. And uh, um, yeah, it's always a day that makes me remember good times. It's not a bad luck day for me. No doubt. Um, It is one of the great or at least one of the more successful movie franchises of all time, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. What's happened to it? Because we've seen reduxes of just about everything else you could possibly imagine from any era, uh, but we haven't seen a new Friday the 13th in quite a while. What's what's the issue? Okay, so there is a a battle going on uh, between uh, Sean Cunningham, who was the producer and director of the first movie, and Victor Miller, who wrote the first movie. And uh, you have to sort of get into the weeds of U.S. copyright law which provides that um, after 35 years, after someone has transferred their rights, a writer can, can terminate that transfer and get the rights back. Wow, okay. So uh, in, in this case, that's what Victor did. He had, he had transferred his rights, you know, in the script to, to Sean, and then um, he, he sent a, a termination notice, and Sean challenged the termination notice Right. saying because there's an exception to the rule which says if, the, if it was a work for hire which is a legal term um then you can't terminate and so this was litigated up and down the courts and well victor won at every level um and, and they confirmed it was not a work for hire victor was an independent contractor and so therefore the termination was valid and but the result of that and again this is into the weird part of u.s copyright law right. is that Victor owns the rights to the first, for the first movie or the screenplay to the first movie, but only in the United States. Okay. And Sean owns the rights to the first movie outside the United States. And he also owns the rights to all the other movies. Um, And since you can't really, because uh, people go, well, well, people want big Jason and, Big Jason wasn't in the first movie, right? But Jason was a character in the first movie. And uh-huh. the author has the right to make derivative versions, just like we've seen movies where you take like, oh, look, it's old Sherlock Holmes or it's young Sherlock Holmes, right? Right. Same, same idea. Um, uh, uh, so, uh, so it's all caught Jason, up in the courts, in other words. It's no, still all caught, actually. Or, the, or in the legal, in legalese. No, the case ended. The, right. the, the, the case ended in September, uh, 
Victor won. The, the appellate court confirmed that Victor won, so he is he is one. But now comes the hard part of fashioning a deal. So if they make a new movie, well, no one's going to make a remake of part one. Because right. that's in, the, in part one, if you're not a horror movie fan, Jason was not the killer. The killer was Jason's mother, Mrs. Voorhees. Jason was the little boy who drowned. He's in the movie for about 20 seconds, maybe less. <laughs> um, so uh, the Jason with the hockey mask doesn't really appear until the third movie uh, when uh, he gets it for me. I brought the hockey right. mask right. to Crystal Lake. And, and that's where you get Jason, uh, uh, the Jason people know and love. So if they're making a new movie and they go, well, it's going to have these elements from part one because it'll be Jason and all they'll mm -hmm. reference his mother, but really it's big Jason. These are all elements that the earth that are in other movies. How do you divide up the money that, that Victor should get right. as opposed to what Sean should get? And that's a tough question for anybody. There's no, there's no guidebook. There's no rules on that. And, and, and there, there's a lot of bad blood going back years because Sean made millions of dollars and Victor did not make millions of dollars. He, he, he made, so made $9,000 for the script and he's made maybe a couple hundred thousand in residuals over the years, but a fraction of what Sean's made. And now he wants to make his money, but they can't make a deal. But it feels like they're leaving a lot of money on the table as each year goes by. Because I gather, and you know this because people talk to you a lot about the Friday the 13th series, there is huge demand for another one. They're absolutely leaving millions and millions of dollars on the table. I, I don't know if Sean cares. I mean, he's 80 years old. He's got plenty of money. He just may not care uh, about, about making another movie. Or like he's not going to make it without if it's on, not on his terms. And they can't come to terms. You, you alluded to it earlier. We talked about it at the beginning, but uh, you're not just a legal expert in this and a fan of the film series. You're, you're intricately involved in all this because in many ways, the most iconic symbol of Jason is that mask. And you gave it to him as a character in Friday the 13th, part three, as the uh, prankster Shelley Finkelstein. Uh, yes, although, although giving is a, is, <laughs> maybe didn't give, uh, but <laughs> Jason got it from me. I brought it and uh, then, uh, you know, died a horrible death as uh, Jason took the mask. Yeah. I, I, I was, I, what was it like? How did you end up in Friday the 13th, part three? Uh, it's actually an interesting story. I, I was uh, 18 years old. I was uh, wanted to wanted to be an actor. I was studying acting in college and trying to trying to be a professional actor, but I hadn't acted professionally. I'd done plays and, and you know, studied and was working on it. And I had a job um, making some extra money, handing out something we do in Los Angeles, handing out tickets to screenings of to preview screenings of movies. Uh, right. So the, so the producers can see how it plays with the audience. And I was in Westwood on a Saturday night. Uh, handing out tickets to a movie no one had heard of called The Road Warrior, starring Mel Gibson. Uh, and yeah. um, these people came up to me and and said, "Excuse me, are you an actor?" And I said, "Well, yeah, I'm an actor. You know, I mean, I was." And they said, "We wrote this movie, and we think you'd be perfect for it." And it was the writers of the movie, Carol and Marty, 
who wrote the movie and, and they sort of, I was just sort of exactly what they had pictured. I had the big Afro and overweight and geeky and, you know, and that was like, that's the guy. And so uh, I gave him information and a couple of days later, I got a call to come in and audition. And, and then I auditioned and I, I don't know how many other guys I beat out for the role, but it seemed like that role was really made for me. It, it was, so a remarkable. So you're handing out flyers to, to what became one of the bigger movie franchises of the last uh, 40 years, as you were about to be recruited into one of the other biggest movie franchises of the last 40 years or so. I'm talking to Larry Zerner, who's an entertainment lawyer, but also an actor who happened to play Shelley Finkelstein in Friday the 13th Part 3. And we're talking about the Friday the 13th franchise and how um, legal battles and disputes between some of the original creators of the Friday the 13th series uh, have meant that we haven't seen a new Friday the 13th movie in quite some time after this we'll talk a bit more about friday the 13th part three and what was it what was it like to be uh, on the set of one of those iconic films we'll get to that after this i'm speaking with larry zerner he's an entertainment lawyer as well as an actor we were talking about or we have been talking about the friday the 13th series uh, uh the legal disputes and now just the negotiations going to try and see if this uh, very popular, very profitable movie franchise will ever be resurrected, as so many others have been of late. Uh, but even more interestingly, Larry was also in Friday the 13th Part 3. As he put it, he didn't give uh, Jason Voorhees the goalie mask that became such an important part of his character, but Jason did eventually take it after uh, Shelley's character brings it uh, to, to, the, to the lake. Um Larry, what was it like to be on the set of one of those films? Because it seems like such a a unique time in filmmaking history, these sort of low-budget slasher flicks that were so popular. Uh, I had the time of my life. It was certainly one of the, it was about, we filmed for about, I filmed for about two months and it it was just great. I mean, to be uh, starting as an actor and be on a set and, they treated me nice and 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 paid me and i had uh, i had a blast it was it, it was just so much fun we had fun it was it was a tough shoot because of the 3d that took a long time it was a very new 3d process it was one of the first movies that did not use the old red and blue 3d we had a new polarized 3d uh where you have the clear glasses like you see now when you go to the imax film um and they were really working out the kinks, so everything took forever. But that was just great because I had more time on the set watching them make this movie, which was so much fun. When you started out, when you were approached, had you heard of? I mean, you were living in LA, so I'm assuming you might have heard of the Friday the Thirteenth series. But were you already a fan? Was it was it a kind of genre of movie that you liked when you were young? I didn't see them. I don't think I saw. I didn't see them in the theaters, um, and. They were not the type of movie that would play on television. They hadn't played on on television yet, uh, I don't think. And I think I went and rented them after uh, um, uh, after they came out. So after I got cast, so I could I could know. Of course, it's not necessary that you know what's going on in the film because, of course. The kids don't know what's going on, right? They're just like, hey, I'm going up for the cabin for the weekend and I'm going to die. But they don't know. They don't know that, right? So, um, but I, I, I don't think I was really a fan. I haven't seen them before. And, and they weren't as big a deal back then. I mean, it just, right, they had done two. Um, and, but there wasn't this thing where like, it wasn't iconic yet. It was just the, 
oh, just like a low budget horror movie. Okay, great. But it had not, nothing like the staying power that it would eventually have. It's just not in the, in the, in the zeitgeist as it, as it became. Yeah, I mean, I remember back in the day, the critics hated them. Uh, they were infinitely popular, but no one expected that many, many years later, those are the movies of the early 80s that people would talk about a lot and pay a lot of attention to. I mean, your character has become, you know, an iconic character in, in the history of early 80s movies. Um, when you go, when you were up there, I, I understand there were some interesting things within the shoot uh, because you were on your first movie set. So, but there were certain things in the movie that you had to had to learn. There's a famous scene of you backing into a, a motorcycle, but I understand that was uh, that took some doing. Oh, the, they did not let me drive. <laughs> they did not let me back that car into the motorcycle. That was uh, <laughs> they, I was a stunt driver because I just would. I, I did not know how to drive. I had to learn how to drive fifth. So there's a there's some shots of me driving, uh, but uh, a lot of it is, was a stunt driver. Uh, certainly, there's that that whip around like i do a U, and that, that was not me and then they they had the car on a rig and did all that stuff but i, I could barely drive that car <laughs> but and, and just knowing i guess um i mean your character dies like most people in those movies did um yeah. but you never actually have a scene with jason Voorhees, do you like did did you meet him did you spend time with him uh yeah, I don't. I didn't have the pleasure of getting a, a, a kill scene. Um, uh, I would see Richard on the set. Uh, I didn't really talk to him. We never. It, we never really interacted. He, he was very imposing. Uh, he didn't really. He didn't really hang with the cast. I, I think purposely, right? Because he didn't right. want to, to to be different. But we didn't really. We didn't have any scenes together. So I, I would see him once in a while, but otherwise, I didn't really get to know him until. 20 years later when um, we started going to reunions and having screenings. And, and that's where I got to know. Him. When we look back at those low budget films of that, of that era, how low budget was it? Like, what was it like to be on the set? I guess you didn't have much to compare it to. It was your first movie. Um, but what was it like just, you know, day in, day out, how intense was the shooting schedule? Uh, what kind of sort of tricks of the tricks of light did we not see as, as the audience uh, that you saw as uh, having been on set? Yeah, they actually, I think for part three, they actually had a better budget. I mean, the first movie, the budget was half a million dollars, $1980. I think the second movie was about a million. By the, for the third, it was four million. So they, they, they put some money into it. They had uh, mostly into the technical stuff. But I remember they, they, we had a great caterer. They fed us well. Uh, <laughs> um, so uh, it, was, it was good. So it wasn't like, and it wasn't one of those rushed, like there were, I've certainly been involved in many uh, really low budget stuff where, where people are, it's all hurry, hurry, hurry. This was not that. It was a little, little more budget and, and they took their time to make it. I'm speaking with Larry Zerner. He's an entertainment lawyer and actor. He played Shelley Finkelstein in Friday the 13th Part 3. We're talking about the Friday the 13th franchise uh, and why we haven't seen a new Friday the 13th movie in quite a while as there's been first a legal dispute and now some negotiations that have to go on between some of the parties involved in the very first film and then one in the rest of the series before we might see a new one. Uh, we've been talking now a bit about just what it was like to be on the set of Friday the 13th Part 3 back in 19. 19- 
in the early 1980s, a movie that did very well, like the rest of the franchise. Uh, after this, we'll talk a bit more about its legacy, because uh, the Friday the 13th franchise at the time was not seen as sort of high art. Uh, but certainly, um, in retrospect, 40 years later, those have become some of the most admired and popular films uh, of the era. And we'll be back with that. I'm speaking with Larry Zerner. He's an entertainment lawyer in Los Angeles and an actor who actually was in Friday the 13th Part 3 playing Shelley Finkelstein, the prankster who brings the hockey mask that would become uh, one of the most iconic symbols or maybe one of the most recognized symbols in film, actually, uh, or recognized props in film. Uh, we've been talking about why we haven't seen a Friday the 13th uh, movie in quite a while. There's been some legal problems, some disputes between uh, the parties involved in the first film uh, as well, and some of the others after, obviously. Um, Lara, you, when did you sense that that the Friday the 13th franchise, and, and certainly the, the kind of pivotal role you pay, played in bringing the goalie mask into that third movie, when did you get the sense that the history of those movies was being changed, that there was a reassessment going on, and that people actually really admired what had been done? It was really in... Um like 2005, I went to uh, a convention in uh, New Jersey um, where for the first time they brought a bunch of Friday the 13th people there. Uh, uh, Adrian King, who was the first girl in the, the final girl in the, in the first movie and Amy Steele who was in the second movie and Kane Hodder, who was Jason in many movies. And there were about 10 of us all together. And that was the first time someone had brought a bunch of Friday 13 people to the same place. And we were in a room, you know, in, in, um, in this convention. And I'm told it was an hour wait to get into the room. And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> I was like, what? Like, that's insane. Like, but so that's when I, I had some inkling of, you know, it's, it's sort of the, the, these people who grew up in the eighties and nineties and really, you know, discover the movie when they were 12, 13, 14. I think that's really the sweet spot. You know, when you start watching it with your friends as you, as you go through puberty and somehow that clicks in your head and, and then you're a fan for life. And, um, and as they got older, they're like, oh, they couldn't get enough. It's, uh, but you had at this point, you had given up acting. I mean, you'd gone into law. How, how was that decision? I mean, I know you still stayed in acting to some extent, but, but you sort of went on to have, you know, a successful career. And when, when did you, decide that maybe acting was something that you had uh, really enjoyed, but you were going to do something different. Yeah, I think Hollywood decided that I, I should do something different because there wasn't, uh, just wasn't making any money being a, uh, an actor. I peaked early. And so, um, you know, uh, just decided to do something that would uh, make a little money and went on to law school and said I wanted to do entertainment law. And so I, I, I focused on entertainment law and that's turned out really well. And I represent a lot of people in the, in the horror world uh, as a lawyer. And so it, I, and sometimes they give me parts in their movies, which is fantastic. So it's a, it's all, it, it's all worked out well. As an entertainment lawyer, there mustn't be many better calling cards when you want to represent people in the horror film industry than saying, hi, I'm Shelley Finkelstein. Uh, it helps. Uh, and, and sometimes it, it, it has helped. Uh, I, I, I once had a case uh, involving a, copyright infringement on about a horror film and it really helped that i was familiar with the horror movie tropes and what what was existing and what was new and how that worked out and and worked out in a way that you know i won the case and i knew that the other lawyers they had no they they just had never seen horror movies so they just didn't have the familiarity and that really gave me an advantage do you have fond memories of when you when you look back? I mean, you're, you're talking about just how much fun you had, but now that you look back at it in retrospect, do you ever watch Friday the Thirteenth Part Three? 
Uh, well, I've seen it many, many, many times over the years. No so doubt. I don't normally turn it on. I know it's on. Uh, I don't know if you guys got AMC in the U.S. Mm-hmm. It's on AMC tonight. Uh, uh, they do you know, Friday the 15th. There's usually a marathon, and and hollow and around Halloween they usually show it. So it's it's on. I don't you know, and I I own it. You know, I don't put it on, but I'll go to screenings, and hopefully this is our uh, 40th anniversary um, coming right, up in course. August, and right. uh, uh, I, I hope there's going to be some screenings around town, and uh, I'll go see it again. Because you mentioned earlier, it was shot in 3D. There was a bit of a, a like, a, I remember this from the early 80s. There was a bit of a rise in 3D again. Some of them were good. Some of them were terrible. Uh, right. But but you've always said that to really appreciate Friday the 13th Part 3, you need to see it in the theater in 3D. But that's not an easy thing to do. It is not. It requires a special projector. It requires a special screen. It's a it's a huge hassle. So it's very rarely shown in in 3d but if you ever if you're people listening if you hear about a, a screening in 3d go watch it it's it's a lot of fun it's it's just a different movie in in 3d so many of the shots there's just stuff coming out of the camera and if you watch it on television it it, it doesn't have any effects but in the theater it works it, it's fun when you look back that, at that era of those films now, um, how do you assess it? When, when you look back, wh- why do you think they still resonate so much? You've mentioned about sort of people being young and so on, but it feels like a whole other generation of people who weren't even around to see those movies when they were released have come to really appreciate them. I, I, I don't know that I have a, a really good answer. I mean, I think, you know, certainly to the extent that Jason and Freddie and Michael Myers have become the equivalent of what the previous generation's Universal Monsters was, Frankenstein, Dracula, and the Wolfman, right? That these are the new uh, archetypes. And, um, but I think also because in, in, those, in those movies, the protagonists are all older, but in, in, in the, this new generation, they're all teenagers, right? They're all just young kids who, who are horny and geeky and 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 so it's much easier to relate to to the to the kids as they go up and to and to and treat them as your surrogate in the in the film and to and go like everyone you know goes up in the cabin in the woods or or you know goes trick-or-treating uh so or you know so you can all relate to to the villain or or that you can believe that could happen in a way that frankenstein and, and dracula don't really play as well anymore and your character i think is also shelly finkelstein's character has also gone through a bit of an evolution because i remember at the time he was meant to be annoying and he was sort of meant to be that (laughs) meant to be that character that that was going to you knew he was going to die eventually and perhaps you shouldn't be so sad when it happened but in fact if you look back at it shelly was actually a really vulnerable you know he's he's kind of a modern character in 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 a in a 80, early 80s movie, I, I think. I don't know if that's an assessment that goes a bit over the top, but he's actually quite a sympathetic character when you watch it again. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, he's, it's, it's hard because it, it is really, I didn't, it was really me. I mean, they didn't write it. You know, they didn't know me when they wrote it, but on the first day of filming, uh, the, Steve Miner, the director, said, you know, don't do a character, you know, just be yourself. And so I really played Shelley as I would play it, like, how would you do, how, what would you do in these situations? Because there really wasn't that much of a difference between us. We, we all, we just had the same story, right? We were wannabe actors trying to get the girl. I mean, that's that, yeah, that was my life when I was 18. So it wasn't a stretch at all. 
And um, so, you know, all that is just how I played it because that's how I that's how I was. I, I, I guess that was that's the appeal of it. It's quite it's a very uh, authentic character, so to speak. When you watch it, it kind of comes through. Uh, maybe that's what's that's what's made them appealing to a modern audience is they are very authentic, right? There's not much that's there's no method acting going on in that movie, right? Although um, I, look, he's he's annoying to some people. People tell me they are annoyed by him, so it's <laughs> it's not it's not everyone's cup of tea. I get it. It's all right. It's all right. Uh, do people still do people? I mean, you've mentioned it earlier. Do people still recognize you just on the street, or sort of do you get stopped and looked at, and all those things that people that people sort of recognize you but aren't quite sure where they recognize you from? Very very rarely. I mean, certainly since we had two years of wearing masks here so we were you know no one right. you know, not much recognized for him. but if i go to a, a horror movie or someplace then yeah people people will recognize me and come up and say hi and that's great are you looking forward to another friday the 13th do you think that's i mean there's been so many reduxes done so many remakes done um do you think the franchise needs another film or is it uh or are you ambivalent about that i really hope that they Sean and Victor can get past this and, and make a deal and we can have more Friday 13th movies. I think the public wants them. We've seen what they did with Halloween and brought that back. And I think they could even do better stuff with Jason. So I, I really hope they, they can work this out. Well, uh, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much, Larry Zerner. And uh, yeah, if you next time anyone out there puts on Friday the 13th, part three, Shelley Finkelstein is a, is a main character in that film. Um, you, now you know who he is. Thank you so much for your time tonight. And as many people wish you happy Friday the 13th. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. It was a pleasure. Well, first it was Finland, now Sweden, both Nordic countries continuing to move quickly towards applying to join the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, better known as NATO, a move prompted by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The decision by the two nations to abandon the neutrality they maintained throughout the Cold War uh, would really be one of the biggest shifts in European security in decades. Here's Finnish Foreign Minister Pekka Havisto. Unpredictable behavior of Russia is uh, an imminent uh, issue. Russia is more prepared to carry out operations that are also high-risk operations for Russia itself and will result in high casualties for Russia as well. We are convinced that Finland would bring added value to NATO. Our wartime strength of the defense forces is uh, 280,000 troops and the trained reserve is 900,000 men and women. Keep in mind, Finland has a 1,300-kilometer-long border so this one with Russia, and this will more than double the length of the frontier between NATO and Russia. Uh, the Russians have reacted with somewhat muted anger, angry still, and veiled threats, warning of retaliatory actions, retaliatory actions still after launching that invasion of Ukraine, which was ostensibly to stop NATO from encroaching on its borders. It's instead accelerated NATO expansion, including on its borders. Well, joining me now to discuss this is Stephen Sademan. He holds the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs in Ottawa. Welcome to the show. My pleasure, Ben. Um, I was watching the former Swedish Prime Minister Carl Bildt, uh, Carl Bildt today describe this uh, the February 24th invasion of Ukraine as an earthquake uh, in both Finland and Sweden. I guess we're seeing the aftershocks today how significant is finland and we expect sweden soon after this decision to join nato after all these years it's it's very significant because in both countries the publics were pretty happy until recently very recently with 
and uh, not being a part of the alliance. They've both been very involved in alliance activities. They both had troops, for instance, in Afghanistan. They've both participated in other NATO efforts, but as as uh, partners, not as members. Uh, but the thing about being a partner is it doesn't guarantee you anything, whereas being a member means that attack upon you is equal to an attack upon all. So really the Article 5 element here is is what you believe is is prompting both the publics in both the countries and and the administration to uh, to go forward with this? Absolutely. Uh, what Russia has demonstrated to the neighborhood is that there's a bright, shiny line that it cares about, that you notice in this war where Russia seems crazy and doing all kinds of amazingly dangerous things, they haven't attacked a NATO country. They have attacked a non-NATO country, but they haven't attacked a NATO country, despite the fact that NATO countries are doing their best to arm Ukraine. But there have been no attacks on NATO bases in Poland or on the equipment that is being shipped from Poland or from other countries into Ukraine. And so everybody looks at this and, and realizes, well, membership makes a difference. Um, now, I always have to make clear that there's nothing automatic about Article 5, that the alliance has to come to a consensus that an attack has happened. Um, and then they have to come up with a plan to response. And then any and all members can opt out of that response that Article 5 has an opt-out clause that it doesn't obligate any country to do anything in particular. However, it matters a whole lot. And it matters a whole lot because it, the idea is that if you attack a NATO member, it can ultimately lead to a confrontation in the United States that might actually involve nuclear weapons. And so nobody wants to start that process. Um, I think that right now, Putin understands that if he were to attack NATO, it would open the doors, not necessarily for a nuclear strike by the United States, but it would open the doors for the United States and its allies using their air power against Russian military formations in Ukraine, and that he doesn't want any part of that. Given that, what did you make of, and of course, Finland has a long, fairly long uh, land border with Russia. What did you make of the Kremlin's response so far? Well, this would be a difference that no country in NATO currently has a long land border. The closest, I guess, is, is Turkey. Um, and yes, the Baltics border Kaliningrad. But uh, this would this would be a large land border and one in which there's a history of violence between Finland and what was the Soviet Union. Uh, they fought a very bitter war before World War II, before the, the Soviets were directly involved in World War II. And then during World War II, as Finland sided with the Germans against the Russians against the Soviets. And so that would be a very different thing. Uh, so I'm not surprised the Russians are upset. Uh, on the other hand, this is what happens in international relations. When you threaten other countries, they tend not to back down. They tend to find allies. They tend to uh, build up their own defenses. This is a basic finding throughout the history of international relations. And so Putin, by doing what he did in 2014, which helped to re-energize the alliance, and what, doing what he did in 2022, is actually causing the encircling that he has been complaining about. Um, but in terms of their threats, I'm not sure anybody's really buying uh, Russian threats because Russia has proven to be not nearly as militarily strong as, as people expected, uh, that their performance to Ukraine has not caused other countries to be scared about um, being defeated by Russia. They're just worried about being attacked by Russia. That's a distinction. That's an important one. And so I don't think that the Swedes or the Finns are going to be deterred by this. And in fact, yeah, as you see with the public opinion polls, they think that the Russians are aggressive and that they can't face them on their own or would prefer not to face them on their own and would prefer not to have to fight a war like what the Ukrainians are doing and prefer to be in the situation of Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Poland, and the rest 
where they don't get attacked, at least conventionally. They might get attacked with cyber attacks, those kinds of things. The deterrence obviously being being the big part here. Um, Sweden and Finland are both countries that will, I gather, um, fit quite nicely into the NATO structure. This won't take uh, much doing, and it should happen relatively quickly, I imagine. Yes. In the 1990s and early 2000s, there were several waves of enlargement, and they were aimed at countries that did not have a history of democracy and did not have a history of civilian control of military and did not have a history of, of all kinds of things. Um, and so while all of them, well, almost all of them, Hungary, Poland, uh, Czech Republic at first, and then the second wave of the Baltics and Slovakia and Slovenia and a few others, you know, there were efforts to have conditions placed on their membership. You know, you have to meet certain standards. And while we can argue about whether those standards were met, there's no question that Finland and Sweden are going to fly through. There's not going to be any concerns about whether their democracies are valid, whether the militaries are competent, uh, whether there's good civilian control of the military. Uh, they're far more stable than a, a few members of NATO I can name. Uh, so I don't think there's going to be a problem. Uh, I do think that the NATO summit in June is probably going to be a situation where they their applications are welcomed and they'll go through a process that will be accelerated. Just how much then has this invasion of Ukraine changed the entire security dynamic? Because we're seeing other NATO existing NATO members, the Baltics in particular, but also other uh, Eastern European NATO members uh, really st- stiffening up their their defensive deterrence. Uh, you get the sense that Vladimir Putin's fears of being encircled by NATO, as you mentioned earlier, uh, that what he did to try to prevent it is, in fact, accelerated it. Uh, how much are we watching in very fast, very quick time, uh, the security dynamic in Europe change? I think it's changing quite a bit. And again, a lot. this is a complete reaction to, to Putin's moves. And this is not the first time. If you take a look back at 2013, 2014, uh, most, if not all, members of NATO were cutting their military budgets. The United States was taking its last tanks out of um, Europe and was trying to pivot to Asia. And so this time around, you're seeing the same thing, but even more so. Uh, Germany, for the past eight years, has been trying to manage the relationship with Russia, has been trying to say, hey, maybe we can help with our relationship, make them a normal, more normal country and limit what they're doing. Uh, we can tie them down with trade. We can encourage their better angels, and maybe that will work out. And they certainly don't want to engage in any real sacrifices, and they didn't want to spend a lot more money in the military. And so I think the biggest shock was not that the Baltics want to spend more money. Uh, the biggest shock in the reaction to this was the, the speech by the German chancellor, where he basically came out and said, we're not only going to get to 2%, but we're going to spend a lot of money really fast. Now, I'm not sure how much money they're really going to spend really fast. I don't know how much of this could be on new equipment versus just getting the German military into a state of readiness, right? You know, in the, in the past several years, I've lost stories about how their, their planes can't fly, their ships can't sail and tanks can't drive for lack of spare parts, lack of money, whatever. But the German shift is quite dramatic and that really changes the security picture of Europe. So I think that's one of the biggest changes. I think the second biggest change is that it's a weird thing to look at the Russians and think, wow, they're more aggressive, but they're much weaker than we thought. And I think that's going to be something that's going to take a while to shake out, a while to figure out, which is, do we need more military equipment to deter the Russians because they're more aggressive, or do we need less because if the Ukrainians can stop them, there's really no way that he, that that Russia can aggress further. I think people are going to hedge and focus more on the first than the second, which is the Russians seem to have engaged in a war of aggression that 
that you know the United States was saying was happening uh, because of their intelligence and their effort to pre-bunk any any kind of false flag efforts by the Russians. But there is that second half of it. We see people like Doug Saunders write pay, write columns about this, where do we really need to have all this military capability in Europe? And again, it goes back to me is there's this bright, shiny line and it matters. And it matters both because of Article 5, but also because NATO is a far more capable adversary than what the Russians thought the Ukrainians were. I'm speaking with Stephen Sadman, Patterson Chair in International Affairs, the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University in Ottawa. After this, a bit more about uh, Vladimir Putin's calculation here and where it went all so wrong. Uh, we'll be back. I'm speaking with Stephen Sadman. He's the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at uh, Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs in Ottawa. Um, it keeps begging the question, what was this just a gross miscalculation on Vladimir Putin's part? Is there some sort of longer game here about NATO and NATO encroachment? Uh, what do you make of the decisions of, of, of the 24th and and the fact that it's prompted instead of a NATO sort of a NATO collapse? Is, we've seen a NATO, another NATO renaissance. Well, I think that's a really good question. And the, the, the thing is, is if we take a look at both 2014 and 2022, what we see is some commonalities here. And the commonality is not about NATO. It's really about Ukraine, and it's about Ukraine's ties to, to the rest of Europe. That what happened in 2014 was there was a bit of regime change going on in Ukraine, and that was going to make them closer, not to NATO, but to the European Union. And that was a, a threat to Russia because it meant that Russia would have less influence in Ukraine and that Ukraine could be a model for other parts of the former Soviet space and even a model for Russians for an alternative that if the Ukrainians can get their act together and have a stable democracy and a stable economy and do well, then what's that going to say about Putin's rule or about the rule of, of the folks in Belarus or in other places? And then what happened since then was that that was a bad move because yes, it you know helped to re-energize NATO, but it also changed the political balance in Ukraine because it took away the most Russian-leaning parts of the population, that the Crimeans and the folks in eastern uh, Ukraine were no longer really part of the political system, which then meant that you ended up having Zelensky win an election. And that was really bad for Putin because Zelensky is uh, anti-Russian, at least in policy, not if not in spirit, uh, that the country itself was moving further for, and further to the West. And so I think what really mattered in 2021 and the lead up to this was that the Ukrainians put together a regime, a democracy that was just doing a whole lot of things that was going to make it more stable and more successful. And that was the real threat to Russia. Because it's really not that NATO is a threat to the country, the Russian, the existence of Russia or the, or anything. It's that Ukraine and the EU are threats to Putin's regime. That Russia has nuclear weapons, so it really doesn't have to fear invasion. And NATO was never going to have the capability to invade Russia. But NATO has the ability to threaten Russia's ambitions to do more elsewhere. But it's really about Putin's political interests. And I think he miscalculated. And when we get to the decision in February, he was being told by his uh, supporters and by his regime that this was not going to be hard, uh, that they thought that in 2014, they had a fait accompli and they got what they needed, which was Crimea. And they thought that there were enough collaborators within Ukraine that they would be able to get into Kiev quickly, uh, get rid of Zelensky one way or another, and establish a, a new regime. And then they'd be able to go back home with a very friendly Ukrainian regime. What they did not understand and what they did not calculate was that the Ukrainians learned a lot of lessons in fighting in the Donbass over the past eight years. And we're going to fight and fight hard. 
And once this thing lasted more than a couple of days, all the calculations went out the window of a fait accompli, that they weren't going to get a, a surprise attack that was going to lead to, you know, the Ukrainians surrendering quickly. And once they started fighting back hard, then then it's it's a war. And that was not what they were betting on. You mentioned this earlier. I know it's something that we can't uh, really predict just yet. But one would think that the performance by the Russian military so far in this invasion of Ukraine has done significant damage to their geopolitical position. You're right. They won't be invaded because they're a nuclear power. But at the same time, their ability to project power seems, at least for now, to have been severely damaged because of the failure of their of their military uh, to carry out their mission in, in Ukraine. Well, when we speak about power, power usually refers to how many tanks you have, how many aircraft you have, how, how robust your economy is, the size of your population, but it's also your reputation for power. How are you successful in doing what you, what you say you were going to do? Are you able to get other countries to do what you want them to do? And this war has basically hurt Russia's material power, that its economy is suffering under the sanctions, that it has lost essentially a British army's worth of tanks and other capabilities. Um, and it's also really hurt the Russian reputation that their military is really just not competitive. Uh, that it's poorly led, uh, that it has poor logistics, as we can see from all the Twitter threads about their tires as illustrations of, uh, of this stuff, and that they're not that hard to thwart. Now, what we're not really getting from uh, this war is really, we don't really know what the, the Ukrainians have lost militarily. Right. We don't really know the damage they've taken. But what we do know is the Russian uh, damage that they've taken. And um, every day there's no, more stories and more videos that illustrate poor Russian leadership and poor Russian military capability. So their ability to bluster and bluff has declined quite a bit. So that's why they are leaning on the nuclear threat, because they got nothing else. They don't really have any economic leverage anywhere in the world. And they don't have a military threat that's really all that threatening. They can do damage, but they can't win. And so the threat to NATO is, well, what might the Russians do? And the imagination uh, you know, causes us to boggle and think about all the things the Russians could do, but they can't take over and defeat uh you know much much nato territory and now so yes sorry i was just gonna say it and as a result you have finland and sweden not being deterred by these threats and now suddenly russia has new nato a a nato neighbor and another uh, regional quote-unquote uh neutral power also about to join nato uh steven sabin thank you so much for your time i appreciate it my pleasure ben Well, this half hour, we're going to talk about the problem with lack of internet speed on in many First Nations communities and just what an impact it is having uh, on abilities as the speed of internet and connectivity gets faster and faster in other parts of the country, just what kind of disadvantage that is and why it is and how it can be fixed. But first, uh, quickly, Pope Francis, as we now know, we've been talking about it all day in the news. We now know his itinerary uh, for his visit to Canada between July 24th and 29th. He'll be in Edmonton, Iqaluit, and uh, Quebec City over that time. We know that he's going to uh, reiterate his apology that he made on to residential school survivors and their families in the Vatican uh, at the Vatican last month. Uh, he will do that on Canadian soil, as was promised. He'll also make a visit to a residential school, we understand. Archbishop Richard Smith is the general coordinator of the visit for the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops. Um, Again, he says that uh, the Pope will go to the site of a former residential school, but plans have been limited by the 85-year-old pontiff's health and decreasing mobility. The Vatican said, look, uh, given uh, the Pope's 
current conditions, this, this will have to be very, very carefully and strictly restricted. He cannot do much. That is Archbishop Richard Smith of Edmonton. Well, Tecumlip's chief, Cookby Roseanne Casimir, uh, is disappointed that the Pope won't be coming to BC during his visit. Uh, Casimir, of course, went to Rome in March as part of a delegation of Indigenous, Indigenous Canadians. So knowing that I gave him an invitation um, and that British Columbia isn't, you know, in, taken into consideration, it is, you know, kind of disappointing in the fact that it would be extremely meaningful. Uh, Roseanne Casimir there. She says she hopes Francis hears directly the stories from residential school survivors that have been impacted uh, and perhaps that uh, he can change his mind and make that trip uh, to Kamloops. With more on this, I'm joined by Chief Joe Alphonse. He's the tribal chair of the Tsilkotin Nationwide Authorities uh, and a recent inductee into the Order of British Columbia. Uh, Chief Alphonse, thanks so much for your time tonight. Thank you for inviting me. Glad to be here. I guess I'm really interested in talking about this op-ed that you wrote for the Globe and Mail about internet connectivity, because it's such an interesting story. But I did want to ask you first off about uh, about the Pope's visit and just the fact that he's not coming to British Columbia. I know we're approaching the one-year anniversary of, of you know news emerging from the Kamloops Indian Residential School of the remains of the 215 children buried there. And uh, I guess it would have been symbolic for him to come to British Columbia. Oh, absolutely. I think... Um you know, the majority of the bands in Canada actually are here in British Columbia, and so probably the biggest impact he's had is, is although they've had big impacts on all Indigenous peoples all across this country, you know, we here in British Columbia, um, you know, that's where the 215 burial grounds were, were first discovered that that, that prompted this, this movement. To, to reconcile and further than that, you know, this is where the first Indigenous uh, nation has uh, proven title, you know, and and they 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 should um, pay tribute to that and and come to British Columbia, and you know, not not just make a you know a a word apology, you know, like that that that's you know they need to pay for for. The dysfunction they've caused in our in in our nations. Every indigenous person in this country has been affected by by what the, the these institutions that they represent have done to our people. So, you know, don't just you know they need to back that up. The words words aren't enough. I was I was realizing that it had been a year. It's coming up on a one year on one year since. The, how how do you look back at the past year? Do you think Do you think um, we've Do you think can it, in general that there's been progress in reconciliation given just the reaction to what was discovered, what was uncovered in Kamloops? You know what was uh, discovered in Kamloops. Um, uh, you know, it hasn't changed anything in terms of us as Indigenous people, but what it, it has done is it's allowed the rest of Canada to actually stop and listen because it's not just stories anymore. There's actual evidence. The stories are people that have been telling over and over and over again, and we weren't allowed to tell those stories. You know, we'd get shut down. We'd get, you know, they, they, they would humiliate uh, Indigenous people in telling those stories. Now, now it's being told. And, you know, we're only at the tip of the iceberg. You know, we, you know, uh, we... 
dig a little deeper, you know, it's horrifying what 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 these institutions done to our people, to any group of people anywhere. What what have you heard over the past weeks since the apology was made in at the Vatican? I, I gather the Pope will will repeat that apology here. Has it brought any comfort at all to uh, to the survivors in your community? Um, you know, I think there's interest in having an apology, but I think more and more, you know, um, that so-called apology, like I, I, from my perspective, that that really wasn't an apology at all, as far as I'm concerned. How so? <laughs> there's no emotion. There's no, you know, there you read body language. There's more than just one form of communication and, what they've done, they denying that and trying to keep it as low key as they possibly can get. You know, that's 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 not an apology. You know, mean, say it, mean it. Come out to the locations, come to the places that where these babies have been burial grounds have been discovered, and and pay tribute to that. Honor those people and honor those. You know, and and acknowledge what 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 had happened and what had happened at the hands of. Uh, at, at, at their discretion, you know, and and by all means, they should be coming forward and wanting to help and assist uh, Indigenous peoples um, in in their healing journey. Not not just not just sit at a podium and apologize. Words are that's that's just words. Like you know, we need more than that. We need we need to heal from what they've done to our people. Chief Alphonse, to change the topic only because I wanted to get enough time to talk about this, you did write a really interesting piece for the Globe and Mail recently about about internet connectivity on First Nations reserves and just what a problem it's become. And I imagine during the pandemic, it became even more glaring. Uh, I was I, I wasn't surprised by the numbers, but certainly this is a big issue uh, for communities such as yours not being able to be part of this ever speeding up process of connectivity. You know, I think as generations go, you know, um, um, the world is just speeding up. And, uh, you know, um, um, I can't even imagine what it'd be like to go through to, to high school nowadays. And, you know, there's there's no way of um, that I could imagine what that's like. And the peer pressures and social media and, you know, computer programs and all of that stuff. So, so you know, we, we want to be able to compete we want to be able to be you know at the same level as all other canadians and stuff at one time it was a big deal just to get a highway up into our communities and then power lines and running water and now today in today's world it's it's um it's 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 internet access that's the world at your fingertips it's education it's it's a social release and and all of that and we want we want to be on a level playing field as every other Canadian that's out there. And yet a lot of our people and, you know, the everyday operation of our ban offices right down to, you know, um, trying to stay connected with family members and all of those things that it, 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 it's, it's important that we, 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 we have all the same access as everyone else. I understand that access right now is is not nearly there. It's it's both uh, not particularly good and it is particularly expensive. Um, very expensive. It's uh, you know we we for you know families out here we 
you know, they have to put up uh, satellite dishes uh, if they want the TV programs and and uh, and to get Wi-Fi and and all of that. And, you know, it's 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 really it's costly, and with the prices of everything else, fuel costs and everything else, a lot of our communities uh, lack opportunity. Uh, um, you know, the, the economy, jobs, opportunities is, is very limited in a lot of our rural communities and stuff. So, so it 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 becomes um, it becomes very challenging um, for for a lot of our people just to. You know, um, what do you do? <laughs> what yeah. do you do? We're all left in the dark here. I'm speaking with Chief Joe Alphonse, Tribal Chair of the Tilcotine Nationwide Authorities and the Chief of the Cladincotine uh, Government. Apologies for the pronunciation. You can correct me when we come back. Um, when we do come back, we're going to talk a bit more about um, just about how to solve this issue, because at the you know right now we're seeing um, high speed internet work in Ukraine, for instance, in the middle of a war zone. It seems incredible that we can't at least provide communities right across this country, even remote communities, with uh, with sufficient and affordable internet access. We'll be back with that. This half hour, we're speaking with Chief Joe Alphonse, Tribal Chair of the Tilcotine Nationwide Authorities and Chief of the Cladincotine Government. Uh, we've been talking uh, in the last bit just about the issue of internet connectivity uh, on First Nations reserves across the country, but specifically in more remote areas, and just what a challenge it's been and, and how long it's been and how much uh, they've been raising the alarm about the fact that uh, as the rest of the world speeds up in terms of its internet uh, capacity that other communities are being left behind and what kind of impact that could have. Uh, Chief Alphonse, what would be the solution here? I, I gather you've been told sort of wait and see on many fronts for a long time, and this is just another one of them. Absolutely. You know, when you look at the statistics uh, from 2019, for example, we have uh, 80, 87.4% of Canadian households have internet access and if you compare that to First Nation homes, um, 34% of First Nation homes have internet access. Like that, there's a huge gap there. And, yeah. you know, we need to, we need to, um, you know, close that gap and provide those same opportunities to our, our membership. You know, it's whether it's, um, you know, social to stay connected to family or, um, economic opportunities, way of uh, staying connected to 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 businesses around you, all of those things all all tie into one another. So, Canadian Canadian government, CR, CRTC and stuff, you know, they, you know, it's almost impossible to 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 have your applications looked at by them. So, that definitely needs to be sped up, and uh, they need to prioritize uh, Indigenous communities that that are in rural settings, you know. Uh, um, there used to be a promise that all Canadians would have all the same opportunity. Well, that's not the case. We, we, we you know, are, are, we're still battling for clean drinking water. And, you know, now you, you want internet access for, you you can get it, but you're going to, it's going to cost you $300 uh, a month when, when the majority of our homes on 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 reserve land, people families are are living on you know on average ten thousand dollars a year. So what are you going to spend that 
$300 on, on internet access or are you going to spend that on trying to feed your family? And that's what it comes down for a lot of our people. Yeah, and it shouldn't be a choice that has to be made. I mean, you're right. Something like connectivity becomes such um, an important thing when it comes to how you just education, opportunity, business. It's such an important thing these days that you would think it might be one of the things that would be a really quick fix in a lot of communities to build that up and allow uh, that connectivity to exist so that you are plugged in uh, to do as, you know, to, to use it as everyone else does, right? Just to be part of this whole global community. We want to be able to access, even from a governance point of view, a lot of the health services that are provided out there is done through connectivity, and, and we don't have it. You know, we have to spend tremendous amount. You know, we up until the uh, pandemic, we would have to, to bus our, uh, our, our members, and, you know, an hour and 15-minute drive, 100 and 110 kilometers into Williams Lake just to get a doctor's appointment, you know what? You can do all this stuff through the internet. And it must and be tough on, oh, sorry, go ahead. So, so it costs us a lot of money in terms of governance and spending and stuff. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's shameful. You, you see, you know, you go to the big cities and they, they talk about all of this advancement and yet we're not even close to it. Do you see any quick solutions out there? I mean, do people come to you with ideas for, because there is an awful lot of, there's a lot of technology out there that can perceive, you know, presumably help make this happen. Do you see anything out there that, that seems like it could solve this problem relatively quickly? Well, hopefully uh, maybe a, a willing politician, a willing government that's willing to stand up and not just talk about doing the right thing for indigenous people, but do it. You know, put some real, put some, put some, put some meat on those promises. Deliver some of these programs. It's, it's, the technology is there. It's just a matter, you know, what are they going to prioritize? You know, as, as Indigenous people, you know, we're often, uh, we're, we're, we're often the forgotten ones in this country. And I often say, you know, this country will not see its full potential until they include all Indigenous peoples. Um, in 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 all of their in all of their governance, you know they they continue to, to to pull resources out of our territories on a daily basis. Whether it's a uh, a gas company, a oil and gas company, a mining company, or, or a logging company, you know our our resources are are out exiting our territories uh, at uh, a phenomenal rate, a rate that we've never seen. But yet, what that's leaving, but what's coming back into our communities? You know, I would say it's probably an all-time low in terms of resources to help govern our, our people and to look after our people. So there has to be a balance. Chief Alphonse, uh, a really interesting topic. Connectivity seems like such a simple thing to provide to communities. It's, it's provided to so many remote communities around the world now. Um, and hopefully uh, there is a solution out there and it comes quickly. Thank you so much for explaining the situation tonight. Uh, I think it's been very enlightening. Thank you. Yeah, and I was on uh, Co. I'm also a member of the Saitkoti Nation. We're yeah. one of the only nations that have won Aboriginal title and yet, you know, we continue yeah. to fight to this day for this kind of stuff. So thank you for getting me on the air. Thanks.